Last week we spoke about Jewish sovereignty, and this week I want to speak a little bit about what happened, um, what is it now, 50 years ago, 56 years ago, 56 years ago in Yom Yishalayim, Six Day War, excuse me, right around now. And I think that you have to divide the day into different layers, and it's almost as if you're celebrating two very different days. When I say celebrating is... Unfortunately, unfortunately, I call this the day of Bittal Torah. Because who celebrates it in Israel? Well, the workforce doesn't celebrate it because they're working. It's not a day off. The Haredi world doesn't celebrate it because they don't celebrate these days. So the only people who celebrate are Yeshiva Bachim. It's a day for Yeshiva Bachim of Dati Lumi. And, and you'll see in the general theater, you don't really have events in America. You maybe have an assembly or a quick movie or something. So I think it's more just knowing and reading and thinking. Obviously, you say Hallel if that's your minhag. And, but I'm more just trying to understand how 1967 changed the world. And I, I would probably divide it into two. I would say it was a six-day war holiday, and it's the Yom Yishalayim holiday. That's a good way maybe to start. What happened 56 years ago um, on this day that we're going to celebrate next Thursday, next Friday? Of course, it's part of our conversation. So first of all, just the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu provided the miracles of our being rescued from what was seen to be, was, uh, was forecast to be a, a second Holocaust. Even if we never returned to Yushalayim, even if we had never taken the Kotel, even if we had never, just call it the miracle of celebrating the Six-Day War. And there's been a little bit of historical revisionism, and people look back at the war, and that's the war in which this whole complication on the world stage began with our presence in the West Bank or Yudah Show, whatever you call it, but put that out of your mind. You could be, I don't think anyone here is, but you could be, in theory, the biggest liberal, the biggest anti-settler. You're not interested. These settlements are illegal. International obstacles to peace. We're conquering other people. Whatever your positions are, and you can still celebrate the Six-Day War. There's no connection between the two. In the months and weeks leading up to the Six-Day War, the, the, the thunder, thunder clouds of, of war were hovering above the Jewish people. Dogs of war being let loose across this area. Those of you who know General Nasser, who was the leader of Egypt, collected all the Arab armies under his control, including the Jordanian battalions, and he kicked the UN out of the Suez Canal, which is where they were established as a pseudo-peace force, peacekeeping force, which was as strange then as it is now, the way it sounds. Because during those years between 1948 and 1967, were not exactly peaceful years, or five, six wars of attrition and terror actions, and as you can well imagine, as we're living through now, we're still living through the War of Independence, as it ended, still taking place right now as we speak. And he threatened a threat that you may have heard about. You can Google this later. But in those days, it was very, very portentous. It was very foreboding. We laugh at it. But if you go look back, General Nasser was the first to say, I'm going to hurl the Jews into the sea. And for us, it's laughable, because we know that we're not really facing existential threats to our country. Pretty much the only existential threat we're facing is Iran. Aside from that, terror is frustrating, and it's dangerous, but it's not going to change the calculus of we're in control of our own future and our own sovereignty. Again, the, the nuclear war threat is still a threat. But in those days, those intervening 19 years between 1948 and 1967, you can almost call it Israel version one. Because the Israel post-1967 is very different, and we'll talk about this later, than the Israel pre-1967. They suffered, we suffered international diplomatic isolation. 
America was not a strong ally of Israel during those years. They didn't arm Israel the way they did after the Yom Kippur War, after they saw our military victory. We were isolated on the world stage. Economically, disaster. Those are the years of food rationing. You line up and get your one loaf of bread for three days, and your one cottage cheese, and your one flour. Again, it wasn't like a third world country in that sense, but it wasn't wealthy, it wasn't comfortable. And most dishearteningly, and you can look up the figures on this, during those 18, 19 years, more people left than came. And we took out kibbutz, galiot, and nefesh benefesh, and abra kanfo saros, and vuseno kanes, and we're waiting for this. The great irony is you finally have a state and the turnstiles and the doors walk in one direction. You know how many people? I'm sure, I'm sure everyone has someone in their family, one or two generations back, who moved from, I mean, my father-in-law is Palestinian. What does that mean? He left, he lived in Palestine pre-World War II, pre-War of Independence. And at some point, I think 1952 or something, it was just too hard for his father to earn a living. He moved to Queens, and thank God he did. Or else I went to met my wife. He raised his family in America. Is he a refugee, though? And there are all sorts of rights when he tries to pass the border. He's like, he couldn't get the passport initially. No, he's, thank God, he's a full Israeli citizen. But originally on his passport, it said Palestine. It's before 1952 or whatever. And he's here that lives here had a passport called Palestine. Those are some rough years. Those were not comfortable years. And those, and again, it wasn't just def- difficult economically. It wasn't difficult diplomatically. It wasn't just difficult militarily. This is right after the Holocaust. People are still suffering the effects of the Holocaust. People are still refugees. People are still settling in. People are still traumatized. You know how many people are traumatized by the Holocaust? I had a step-grandmother. She couldn't stand two things. She lived through Kristallnacht. She told me about Kristallnacht. And she couldn't stand two things, glass and children. So I would visit my grandfather for about an hour at a time. I never slept under the same roof as my grandfather because his stepwife couldn't take it, couldn't take children. And we'd sit at the table, and there'd be plastic forks and plastic spoons and plastic cups and plastic plates. We'd eat. We'd smile, we'd get a kiss from our zady, and then we'd leave. Because she was so traumatized by the sight of kids and the prospect of glass breaking in front of kids, she just couldn't stay at the table. She was a victim. So these were some very, very difficult times. In the weeks leading up to the Six-Day War, speak to people who lived through it. Read the books. Kids came to school, whether you're a religious Zionist, whether you're a Haredi, whatever you did, you came to school, you sat to Hillen for five hours, and you went home. No classes, no courses, no papers, no tests, to hell I'm in home. Women and children. I, my aunt, passed away two years ago, was sent, I think, to Belgium or something. Some women and children were being sent out of the country. Let's just get them out of harm's way. People were feeling they were digging mass graves, not mass graves for people, mass amounts of graves in all the parks in the lead up to the war. And all the generals, and this is what's so hard about being a general, were sitting there calculating, how can we survive? How many casualties will we have to pay just to keep the state going? Will it be 80,000? Will it be 90,000? Those are the numbers they were speaking about. And like our grandfather, Avram Avery, we stood on one side of the river, and the entire world stood on the other side of the river. There are no allies, not America, certainly not Russia, none of our, obviously, Arab allies today or our peaceful friends, we had nothing. We were completely alone. People went into bomb shelters. We didn't even have bomb shelters. They went the first night of the war into basements. Because in the basement, if the building gets bombed, you get a 50% chance of living. If you're on the second floor and it gets bombed, the whole floor collapses and you fall into the rubble. If you're in the basement, you're playing your luck. 
the right side of the building gets bombed, you're on the left side, so the right side collapses and you stay on the left side. If the left side gets collapsed, then you're killed under the rubble. That was the scene. Forget you, Shalayim, in, your, in their wildest dreams. In their wildest dreams. And remember, generals are tasked with game, plan, game planning for every possible scenario. That's the job of a general. Because in the heat of battle, you don't have the calm and the poise to think about your next move. So you have to have every single possibility planned out. Every single possibility has four or five different sub-options. And in the heat of the moment, oh, this is how it's uh, playing out. Let's implement option B and plan it. It makes quick snap decisions. So it's the job of generals to think as absurdly as possible. Whatever remote possibility you have to try to take into account. No one, no one in their right minds was thinking about the Kotel, was thinking about Yerushalayim, was thinking about Grush and and Hebron and Shem. <laughs> How can we survive? Tel Aviv, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Haifa. How many casualties? Will they invade the Kinneret? Will the Syrians cross the Kinneret? No one was thinking for a moment about walking back into biblical homelands. And then all of a sudden, they walk up, and they walked up out of their basements the first day, and heard the cackling voice of the radio announcing there's no longer an Egyptian Air Force. We eliminated the Egyptian Air Force overnight. Six days. They still study the military victory of the Six-Day War in all the military academies across the world. It's still befuddling. How, how do they defeat three armies and span of six days such a convincing victory? All the heroic stories you can read about in Like Dreamers or in some of the other books that try to document what took place. I never come in Like Dreamers. That's the obvious one. So let's take a look at Source 2. This was in the original sources. Obviously, we're going to veer from this page, but let's take a look at Source 2. Remember I told you, Cheska Perachov reminds me a lot about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. But when I read Malachim Beis, I think a lot about the Six-Day War. What happens in Malachim Perak Beis? Amatsia is the ruler in the south, where Judah, Yehuda, Minyamin live. So who is the king in the north? Yeravam, but not Yeravam ben Nevat, the nefarious, wicked Yeravam ben Nevat, but his successor, who, by the way, had the same first name, unrelated, Yeravam ben Yoash. So Yeravam ben Nevat has passed. The successor in the north for the Aseris HaShavatim is Yeravam ben Yoash. But don't worry, they share more than the same first name. They're both evil, they're both wicked, they're both malevolent, they're both criminal. What does it tell us about Yeravim ben Yoash? Vayasara ben Hashem, source number two, two line two. Just like his predecessor. What did he do? What happened during his administration? He led to grand territorial expansion. He pushed the borders of the Jewish people all the way west to the Mediterranean Sea. Like Hashem had prophesied through Yonah, right? The trick question, where does Yonah appear? Where else does Yonah appear? This is the, the whale boy, the whale prophet. Appears in Malachim Beis, Parach Yodalit. Yonah, of all the Nevi'im, had prophesied about this territorial conquest. Why? Why is this wicked king? A lot worse than the secular Zionist. A lot worse than Moshe Dayan. A lot worse than Matagor. These are some of the personalities of the Six-Day War. Ariel Sharon. Why is this wicked king leading to this grand territorial conquest and this military triumph? The Pasuk says, Hashem saw that the plight of the Jewish people was too destitute. No allies, no one to help, no, no one to collaborate with, them, no partners. Hashem knew that we had 
borders that were indefensible. The borders at the time of Yeravim and Yosh were indefensible. From Mitzrayim, from Ashur, from Ammon, from Moab. Vayoshim b'yad Yeravim and Yosh. It's a pretty powerful pasuk. Vayoshim b'yad Yeravim and Yosh. So that day, Hashem sent us His messenger, Yeravim and Yosh. How can you read these sukkim without thinking about 1967? You've all seen the burned out tanks on the road up to Yushalayim, now they're on the side. You've seen the middle of the high road. I was in Yushalayim, they're literally right in the middle of the high road. You have to like drive by them. Now they put them off to the side. You took your life in your hand traveling to Yushalayim before 1967. They couldn't, they couldn't get close to the man in the Babel Gate. You got close to the man in the Babel Gate to the old city, you got shot at. The closest you could get was Shart Zion. That was, that was the closest you could get to. Hartzion, where the diaspora yeshiva is, and a little area on the side. That's why there's actually a Holocaust museum there. Because that in 1948, when they started to build the close to the there's a small little Holocaust cultural museum there. So before you let your mind wander about Yerushalayim and the Shtachim and the Messianic, and the, there is a kernel to this day in which you just say, because who knows where this was heading? This could have gone south very quickly. We could have lost our state. And in some ways, the military victory of 1967 was even more impressive than the military victory of 1948. It's hard to argue which is more impressive, the, the rapidity and the speed and the complete transformation. In 1948, we won a battle here, we lost a battle there. We won here, we lost there. Obviously, it was still tat- tattered Holocaust refugees fighting, so that made 48 more impressive military. I'm not a military historian. So you could hold the two up, but there's certain parts of 1967 militarily which are even more unpredictable and more miraculous and more perplexing than 1948 was. So before you start thinking about the larger connotations of Yerushalayim, just think about the Six-Day War. Those have to get the word, take the word Yerushalayim out of your head. Because second saying Yerushalayim, you immediately think about the Kotel, you immediately think about Yerushalayim, you immediately think about Gush you immediately think about, well, there's more to that. There's something else. There's something deeper and more visceral and more existential that happened during the Six-Day War. The second part of the day is obviously Yom Yishalayim. And what does Yom Yishalayim mean? Well, Yom Yishalayim, and returning to Yishalayim, when I say Yishalayim, I don't just mean the Kotel. I mean the entire, what I like to call the biblical corridor. Sefer Bereshus unfolds in a corridor that stretches from Shechem, Elon Moreh in the north, down through Yishalayim, Snaking its way through Beit Lechem, running right through Gush Etzion, down to Hebron, ending up in Beer Sheba. That's where Sefer Bracious unfolds. There's nothing about Sefer Bracious in Tel Aviv. There's no moments, again, he visits Avi Melech, so he maybe sees the coastline, but there are no major events that take place outside of this biblical corridor. Nothing happens to the east, nothing happens to the west. They're all part of Eretz Israel. But this is Eretz Abos. This is where it all happened. This is Sefer Bracious. This is the land of Sefer Bracious. This is where it unfolded. And to a degree, 1948, I can't really call it a Pyrrhic victory because there's nothing Pyrrhic about having sovereignty in a state, but it's an incomplete victory. You imagine if you lived in Gush and you saw your parents massacred and you were orphaned and then you had to move to Yushalayim as 250 people were on the eve of independence in 1948. Can you imagine never seeing the Kotel? Could you imagine hearing that the Jordanians are converting all the shuls in Bate Knesset and Bate Medrash of the old city into horse stables and into sewage reservoirs? And So it was a lot of pain. It was a very sweet victory. It was a very bittersweet victory. And then all of a sudden, as I said before, in ways that people didn't anticipate, the last thing on their mind, how do I know it was the last thing on their mind? 
If we had been planning this, you know what would have happened? In the immediate aftermath of the Six-Day War, we would have annexed all the territories. And all these issues that we're now struggling with would be simplified. That's how euphoric, that's how convincing, that's how intimidated everyone was after our victory. Everything, I, I still remember, I, I came to Israel 17 years, 18 years, 16 years after the Six-Day War. We literally walked through Beit Lechem. We just take you limp through Beit Lechem, stop off in the supermarkets, people like walked out of our way. That's how frightening and, and how powerful the aura of Israelis were in the wake of the Six-Day War. And the Intifada broke through. Maybe the first Intifada, so traumatic and transformational, was we were now for the first time seen as weak and vulnerable and, and we, they, we could be attacked, which of course was true. It was a different world. No one anticipated it. And even the Kotel, if not for Ariel Sharon, who blitzkrieg two, three days after we returned to Yushalayim, the Kotel used to be a small little alley. Small little alley. You've seen the old pictures of the Kotel. It wasn't this big plaza. About three, four days after he took the Kotel, he unilaterally brought in a, a bunch of bulldozers and he created the platform. Could you imagine, had we not, had we presented it to the UN for a vote and a conversation, it'd still be a little alley, it'd still be disputed, and our hold on the Temple Mount and Harabai would still be questionable, as it is, as it's still being disputed. So this is completely unanticipated. None of this was seen. None of this was predicted. And when Jews return to Yerushalayim, a lot of things happen. Let's talk about how it affects the Jewish world, and then we'll talk a little bit how it affects the broader Jewish world, and we'll talk a little bit how it affects the general world. Bone Yushalayim Mashem There's a Gemara in Brachos that says as follows. Gemara wants to know how we end the third bracha of its brachas memtas. How we conclude the third bracha of Benching. The first bracha concludes Hazan Ezakol. Second bracha concludes Al Haaretz Mazon. Third bracha, which is about Yushalayim, Uvenei Yushalayim Mirakodesh, 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 Hashem. Bone There's a descending opinion, I think it's a Behudo and Brachastaf Memtes, that says, instead of saying Bone Yushalayim, it sounds like he should say Moshiach Yisrael. He should say, talk about Yeshua. Not Bone Yushalayim Hashem, but Moshiach Yisrael. At which point the Gemara says, Moshiach Yisrael in Bone Yushalayim. Low! Like, are you crazy? You're going to recite a Bracha about Yeshua and salvation and rescue and not mention Yushalayim? It's ridiculous. It doesn't, it doesn't compute. So I think it should be who do whoever the should. No, no, you got me wrong. I meant you should also say Moshiach Yisrael. No one in his right mind would say the word Yushalayim without, or would talk about Gula without Yushalayim. It's crazy. What I meant is, instead of just saying Bona Yushalayim, you should also add the phrase Moshiach Yisrael. It's Baruch Memtes. Jewish redemption is chronological. Jewish redemption is historical. Jewish redemption is spiritual. Jewish redemption is cosmological. But it's also geographical. And it's not just geographical in the macro sense that we all assemble in our homeland from all over the earth, but it's geographical in a very, very specific locale. And that is Machon Lishiftacha Pa'alta Hashem Mikdash, Machon Atikri Machon Ela Mechuvan. It's aligned, Yushalayim Shalmata, is underlined right underneath the Kisei Akavod. That's where humanity began. HaKadosh Baruch Hu took the dust from the Harabayas and created man. That's where history will end. And we, as the people of Hashem, meant to drive history and to represent them in history, are meant to live in the land with our mikdash and our capital centered upon. There is no geula without Yerushalayim. It doesn't exist. Now, it could be staged, it could be unfurling, but in the narrative of geula, it has to include Yerushalayim. And until and once Yerushalayim 
is acquired by the Jewish people and settled by the Jewish people, Gula is still stuck in the mud. Once we return to Yerushalayim, then Gula starts to move forward. And as I mentioned before, the change between pre-Yom Yerushalayim or Yom Muhammad Sheshit and post, it's like black and, black and white, night and day. The country before Yom Yerushalayim was very poor. The country today, 56 years since, economic superpower. The country before, militarily isolated. Now, military superpower. All the markers, all the metrics of Gula, of the success of our people, the prosperity of our people, and not, of course, just in the general sense, but even the religious sense, the growth of yeshivas. This entire world, you're, you're sitting here, is a product of Yom Yerushalayim. Because there was no Dati Lumi Torah world to speak of. There was a fledgling Haredi world, and who knows where that would have gone if not for Yom Yerushalayim. I believe it wouldn't have prospered without Yom Yerushalayim because there are metaphysical forces about Yerushalayim that are radial, that affect even people who don't see it. But let's say, for argument's sake, say that Panavish and Mir in that world would have flourished even without Yom Yerushalayim. Let's just say for argument's sake, because they had at least a seedling of yeshivas beforehand. But in the Datilomi world, nothing, garnished. Merkaz Harav, that's it. And one has the yeshiva, yeshiva is Karen Biyavna, whose ideology wasn't Hester. His ideology was you should learn in a Haredi yeshiva, but if you decide to join in the army, you need some remedial learning. It's more or less like always a machina. It was what we would call a machina, obviously at a higher level. And this, literally, this empire, and when I say this empire, I mean Grisham Migdalos, and this whole model of Hester was built. Hester would not have been born without the euphoria of the Six Day War. Who led, who are the people sitting with Rav Amital in his living room in 1968 trying to twist his arm? The Six Day War heroes. Hanan Parat, and Reviel Ben Nun, and a bunch of Talmudim. And they felt the timing was right. Hashem returned the land to us, returned the biblical card to us, finished the land to us. We need to start a yeshiva in the land that had seen so much Kiddush Hashem. Please, Rav Amitav, please, this is your moment. And I, he only took it because they twisted his arm and he got a sense this was a moment in history. Because it was a moment in history. So much changed. I mentioned before the Aliyah. And we'll get back to the Aliyah later. That's when Aliyah began. That's when programs began. That's when you started coming. Not you, you weren't born yet. But that's when the first drips and drabs and tricks, little trickles started coming in in the 70s. People didn't come in. Here, you know, oh, you came to Israel in 1962. Can I kiss your feet? I've never met anyone like you. You went on a boat. That's when people started to, in the 80s, the drips and drabs and the little trickles became a Torah, became a title. I already came with like 60, 70 people in 1983. But in 1965, here one, there one, no one really came. That's when Western Jews started taking interest in Israel, not just through Aliyah, but through purchasing apartments in summer. Again, it's pre- pressuring our economy, it's driving up real estate prices. Young, you, you can't imagine how much young Israeli couples hate rich Americans from Teaneck, because they're the ones who are buying up all the pricey apartments and forcing these young couples to move out to, you know, I don't know, who knows where. But it's good, because we want all Jews to be shareholders in Israel. And the way you're a shareholder is sometimes by living here, and sometimes about caring about investing. And in the end of the day, this is investment. It's going to affect all of us. Money's pouring into our country. It's going to make our country more wealthy, higher standard of living. So the prices, you may have to live in Kiryat Gat or something. But the benefit is that there's money that's flowing into our country from overseas, and not just the money, but the interest and the engagement. You say this every day. What are you saying to Hillam? Kitav zamr lokinu kinayim nevatila bone yushalayim Hashem nitchei yisrael 
until Bona Yishalayim Hashem, until Hashem built Yerushalayim, and he built Yerushalayim in 67, Nidchei Yisrael Yechanes wasn't happening. None of the Nidchei Yisrael were coming back. Once Bona Yishalayim Hashem happened in 1967, then Nidchei Yisrael Then all of a sudden people started coming back. So the wheels of Geula, that's the first image. The wheels of Geula started to move forward in 1967 within the people who lived in Israel and the people who were interested in Israel. The Torah learning in Israel. That's what I think is the start of this major, major demographic spiritual turn in Israel. A lot of the opposition to the original state of Israel under secular Zionist leadership, when it's because it wasn't secular leadership, it was baleful, hating, virulent, anti-religious leadership. The original secular leadership was not just secular, they were out to denude the country of any religious settlement. This was the shameful, embarrassing religion of exile, and we had to make a new Jew, and they were hostile and antagonistic to religion. Jabotinsky and Gordon, and to, even to a degree Ben-Gurion. That's not the people you know today. Those are some of the arch left-wingers, maybe in certain parties. But your average secular Israeli today, again, this is very delicate, because if we push too hard, one would claim, if we legislate and coerce religion, and if we give too much money to religion at the cost of the economy, it may lead to a backlash. It may alienate people. But right now, maybe 10 years ago even, or the last 10 years have been hard years for religion, but the last five, five years ago, let's say, most of the country would not be called anti-religious. Most of the Likud voting people in this country, that large, massive middle people of the Merkaz, you would call them traditional. They have a soft spot in their heart for Judaism. They have a soft spot in their heart for religion. They want to keep mitzvahs, but they want to keep Shabbos at some level. They'll go to shul, they'll light a candle, they'll have a meal, they'll, they'll think about Pesach. Not, not, not religious observance, not religious fidelity, not fanaticism, not fundamentalism. It's a different country. When I listen to Haredim battling against the Zionists, I mean, I don't laugh because it's painful, but I laugh because it's outdated. They're, they're fighting a war 50 years ago. But that's the Haredi community. It's hard for them to shift because it's, it's preserving the past by definition. But the frequency and the way they sound like the, the goblins that they're fighting don't exist anymore. They're fighting ghosts. Those arch, I mean, if you take, I, I still remember Yossi Sarid, you can look up that name, and then there was a woman, what was her name, a face? I see her face right in front of me. Oh, I have to look for her name. She's like big, what? She's a big blonde, Afro hair. She was like uh, in the eighties and nineties. No, no, Israeli Parliament member. I have to find it. I mean, these people could bring it. They'd get up in the Knesset and they trounce rabbis and trounce Hashem and trounce religion and trounce Torah. And you could really see the nachash, the serpents and the scorpions and the. And today, most people, they're not ideological. They just want to get along. They may they want religious coercion. It's a different world. That shift started in 67. The Kota was an electric moment. The unified people, even people who were atheists, felt something, felt some spark, felt some religious motivation, some religious revival in the if. I still remember coming in 1993 making Ali. I remember buying my first used car. I didn't know what was happening. Someone hooked me up with some, I don't know, housewife in Rehovot or something. <laughs> Whatever, like I'm driving, like she brings her friend, we're driving to get the car test. She says, what are you doing? Well, I'm gonna, I wasn't even a rabbi, I'm learning in Yeshiva Haritz. So, ah, oh, Hezder, Eser, 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 like this. 
I was like a rock star. I'll take the car. We'll pay you to take the car. You don't have to pay anything. You're great. Unfortunately, we paid a high price for our political, uh, politicalization between the disengagement from Aza and the Amona and the Mil- I mean, we just, we've lost the public, we've lost the public uh, interest. Some people say it's, that's the price it's worthwhile to pay, but I don't think so. But the Israeli public or the international? The Israeli, well, maybe both, but still the Israeli public in general. You don't think us being here is worth it? No, no, I'm just the, the way, the, not being here, more the aggressive nature of our policies. We're so aggressively pursuing policies rather than being conciliatory. I think we should stay in the Shtachim, but some of the body language and the way we've spoken and the not compromise and the absolutism. So essentially, you want to establish a certain legal legislation, which you lose public interest. And at some point, public interest is more important to me than what's on the books. But that's right, a political standpoint. So if, so if you're looking to chart the first shift outside of the Six Day War, the military victory, what happened when we turned to Yushalayim? And everything changed in this country. Everything changed religiously, everything changed spiritually, everything changed demographically, economically, everything changed with Aliyah. We'll talk about three other spheres of influence of returning to Yushalayim in a moment. Yes, sorry, thank you for your patience. Um, you, so you said in the last 10 years things have changed religiously. Can you elaborate on? I think there's a growing um, anti or alienation from religion. Worldwide. No, in Israel. So far, I just talked about Israel. People don't like to be coerced. People don't like to have... This is, there's a painful reality um, that Haredim don't serve in the army. I'm not excoriating them. I, I think any person that loves Torah has to... I'm writing an article in that called The Ten Commandments for Religious Zionism for Shavuot. I think one of the commandments is that we have to respect Haredim and see ourselves as partners in a larger spiritual enterprise, even though you disagree with that particular decision. So, if it, I always think as a Baruch Knesset member, would I try to legislate Haredim into the army? I don't think so, because I support Torah, and if they feel that's the way to express the Torah, I couldn't see myself, you know, also for a practical reason, I don't think you can legislate against culture. There's a culture not serving the army, they'd, they'd rather go to jail. 60,000 people in jail is not going to help anyone, so I don't think it would be practical. But... Um, it's a very sore point, and I think when you have a sore point that is abrasive to people, you have to be quiet about it rather than shoving it in people's faces and being uh, triumphant about it and being explicit about it. Some things that you can change and are, you know are painful to people, you just don't talk about as much. So I think it's a question of not only the policies, what I said before, but the way we've presented the policies and whether we validate and credit other people. So it's hard to send your kids to war and, not, and see people who are. So it's... It's settling, and, and, and it's not just the Haredim. The fact that you're living or you're studying this year in Megdalos, written large, means that there has to be X amount of Gedudim, X amount of Flugot that are protecting you here, and that means that husbands are separated from their wives for a month at a time when we him, and it means that the army's been... So it's not, it's not a simple solution, and instead of trying to say, look, this is, let's try to build a consensus, let's try to find where we agree and where we disagree, let's try to find ways to smooth over, it's been very, very um, adversarial and very combative and very disputational rather than trying to move ourselves. This is what, when I was your age, I remember it was much more consensual. We want to settle the territories, but it's not going to be in an aggressive, hostile, takeover type fashion. I think we've become very aggressive in the points of contention that have led to a lot of alienation. So that political aspect of it has changed people's religious no, it's not. It's not religious. I don't think. I don't think there's a religious yardstick. How much they put on tefillin, how much tires and mishpacha they keep. But it's a question of how they view religion. Do you view religion favorably? Do you view religious people favorably? And I think that 
in the beginning of the state of Israel, the secular Ashkenazi establishment was anti-religious. There was a shift after the Sixth Day War, but in the last five, ten years, I'm picking up a shift in which there's a lot of um, opposition and hostility towards religion. So there's, there's a... Um, I see, ironically, a lot of that has also been the, the, the growing Balchuva movement. So I think a lot of secular Israel feels threatened because a lot of their kids are becoming Balchuva. So a lot of it is unintended. No one asked them to be a Balchuva. They just did it on their own. And then when you, so to speak, lose someone from your family... There's a lot of pent-up hostility to the movement that stole your kid, or, you know, to the cult movement that stole your kid. So there's a lot, a lot of layers to unpack. But I think that after the Six-Day War, there was a swing, and I'm worried that the swing may be swinging, the pendulum may be swinging back. Okay? Okay, that's number one. Number two, how else did Yom Yushalayim change the Jews? We'll talk about the non-Jews a little bit later. Well, let me tell you the following story, okay? I told you last week, that my grandfather moved from Russia in the early 20s, picked up, moved to America, collected pennies, kept Shabbos, and brought over his family one by one. Today, there are hundreds, I don't know how many, hundreds, there's so many WhatsApp chat lists, I can't even tell you, Tarragans all over the world, all because of that one heroic, brave decision that he took 100 years ago that in those days, no headlines paid attention to, or no one talked about, but obviously it was more important and some of the other Narish guide that took place in that year that grabbed headlines. Now, one sister of his was left behind. Now, being left behind in the Soviet Union of the 1920s means at some point you're going to lose your religion. And indeed, she lost her religious identity. They scrubbed religious identity. It wasn't just anti-Jewish, although there was an anti-Semitic element to it. It was anti-religion, because religion was the opiate of the masses and stood in the way of allegiance to the Communist Party. And they lost it. I remember her son, Yakub, who was a Communist Party member, somehow got out, I don't think got out for good, but he came to visit me in Brooklyn in 1972 or something. It was on an official communist visit. My uncle Yakub, and he sat at the kitchen table with a little suitcase by, he was on his way to whatever. I was absolutely convinced that he had a nuclear bomb in the suitcase, because I'd seen all the movies in which he carried the suitcase, and I was sitting there watching the suitcase. What's Yaakov doing? Watching his fingers. I got my knife ready, my little butter knife out. If he pushes that button, I'm slitting his neck, Yaakov or not. He said, Pass the butter. I threw the butter out of Okay, well, I'm just watching your finger, Yaakov. He gave me a little toy tank with a Russian star on it. I brought it into his school. My friends were like, Wow, you got a Russian tank, and the turret moves back and forth. Like three days later, the batteries went. So I went to the store to replace the batteries. Problem is there were Russian batteries, so the store obviously didn't have any Russian batteries, so I tossed it in the garbage. And that was the end of Jakob's toy tank to me. I said, I started in my little toy tank. I didn't have much when I was a kid, but I thought I hit the jackpot in my toy tank. Evidently, I was I was to be I was to be uh, further disappointed. Anyway, so why am I telling you the story of Yaakov and my aunt who stayed behind? Because I'm not telling you the story of Yaakov and my aunt. I'm telling you the story of millions and millions and millions and millions of Jews. In one of the greatest, greatest cultural and religious lobotomies of Jewish history. Ironically, in some ways more successful than the Spanish Inquisition in scrubbing Jewish identity. Because a lot of Jews in the Spanish Inquisition ran away, strengthening their religious identity. A lot of them secretly converted as a sham, but secretly kept their Judaism. It means by definition you're strengthening your Jewish identity. Some people left. Obviously, large populations left. We talk about millions and millions, certainly numbers-wise. There were millions of Jews in Spain. The smaller populations those days. Hundreds of thousands, maybe, not millions. 
Here's how millions and millions of Jews. And they're lost to history. And they're all my uncle Yaakov. And there's nothing that's going to thaw them from the Soviet freeze. Except for one thing. Jews walking into Yerushalayim. There's something magnetizing about Jews being in Yerushalayim that goes beyond logic and beyond human expression and comprehension. Because when we stand under HaKadosh Baruch Hu, there are larger forces that operate in this world. And think of Yom Yerushalayim and the return to Yerushalayim as a radial event rippling out from Yerushalayim and affecting Jewish hearts. The Medrash says, based on David, David calls it I think in Kuflam, but hey, I'm the Sayyidah, Lady Mishayah, Yishalayim, Yishalayim Habinuyah, Ki'ir Shechubra La Yachdav. Anyone know the Drasha? Kol Yisrael Nasa Chaverim. Everyone is magnetized and unified when it comes to Yishalayim. Everyone finds themselves a member of Judaism because of Yishalayim. Is that something that sociologists can put their finger on? Not that historians can explain. That is when the Refusenik movement began. If you're looking for the origins of the Refusenik movement, in 1962, who would have dared, who would have dared oppose the Russian Soviet Union? Jabotinsky, right, excuse me, uh, no, not Jabotinsky, uh, no, Sharansky, wrote in his book that when he was growing up, he had no sense of what it even meant to be a Jew. Like, I'm a Jew, I don't even know what it means. Like, you ask him, what does it mean to be a Jew? I know they hate me, that's all. For some reason, they hate me. I don't call the Jew, they hate me. What is it? culture, religion, ritual, faith, nothing. History had no clue what the word Jew meant. How do you go from being completely scrubbed of your identity and living under the totalitarian Soviet regime to all of a sudden being willing to sacrifice your life and being thrown into jail just because you want to return to this land you've heard of but you've never seen and you don't even know what it means? That began in 67. In the aftermath of 67, Russians start, Russian Jews start to say, I need to go home, and I'm willing to be incarcerated for it, I'm willing to be imprisoned by it. And, and of course, as I'll say in a, bit, in a few minutes, that changed the world's history because it led to the collapse of the Soviet Union because the Jewish refusedik movement was the only movement that dared oppose Russia. But forget the larger implications. One of the most underrated events of the last 75 years of the State of Israel, people don't fully appreciate is Russian Aliyah. Most of you here are Western-centered. You come from America, you come from England, you come from Australia, it's Western civilization. So you see local Israelis, and you see Western Aliyah. With all due respect, and of course, it's my family. Right? I'm an American, Rabbi Fast, founded in Epish, but my brother-in-law, so I'm all in. No one should doubt me that I'm not a supporter of Western Aliyah. How many Jews have made Aliyah from America and from England over the last 75 years? Maybe, maybe, what's the number? 400,000, maybe? Uh, 4,001? <laughs> All of a sudden, 1.5, 1.6 million Russians made Aliyah. And they all came together, which is much more impactful than drips and drabs. That changed the face of Israeli society. And let me tell you the two ways it changed it, okay? What? Right. That's reflective. When I was in Yeshiva in 1984 and 1985, do you know how much a bag of milk cost? 70,000 
shekel. On Monday. On Tuesday, it cost 90,000 shekel. I lived through the Banana Republic years of crazy inflation. We, and it really wasn't right of us, used to wake up in the morning, daven in the yeshiva, and run to the makolet just to whatever money we had, we threw at the makolet owner, and we bought before they had the time to raise the prices over the night's inflation. So we were getting yesterday's deflated prices with today's inflated, therefore devalued currency. Say so we were like saving 20% or something. Until they had to make an announcement, it's immoral. It's not your Makola, it's for the Israelis in the community. And we're banned from the Makola. No, seriously. The Makola, we were only allowed to go in after they changed the prices. That's how dizzying it was. That's how unstable the economy was. People ask me how I acquired so many Svarim in my house. I promise you, I lived through this period. I would go into a Svarim store in Yushalayim, I would give the person the $10 bill, and that $10 bill was so valuable because all the Israeli currency was a joke that he would say, take whatever you want. Just go around the room and take whatever you want. I was just talking of within reason. I couldn't bring in four trucks, but it took three, four, as far like no one was looking at prices. Dollars were so valuable that nothing in that store could be the equivalent. So if I gave them the $10, $15, whatever I gave them, take as much, you know, as reasonably as you want. Because the buys didn't mean anything. That's how haywire this real economy was. Now, what and who saved us? Well, interestingly enough, a little footnote of history. One of the people who introduced an economic austerity plan was Shimon Peres. You all don't know that Shimon Peres was responsible for two of the most dramatic achievements in the history of the state of Israel. One is he led the nuclear war, he, not nuclear war, but acquired nuclear uh, warheads in the 60s, 50s and 60s. And in the 80s, he became the finance minister and he introduced economic austerity to try to rein in inflation. But you can have economic austerity from here to Wazir, it's not going to help unless you have resources. And Israel was just short on resources, short on oil, short on uh, minerals, short on whatever, short on water, until we discovered the resource that beats all resources. And it's not oil, and it's not water, or it's not minerals, and it's not currency, and it's not diamonds, it's human beings. And that's how we have become a startup nation, with the most valuable resources is just human beings. Now, I also lived through Ethiopian Aliyah. I remember when the Ethiopians came to Israel, literally, they landed right from the airport in Yeshiva for Shabbos. And each of us was assigned an Ethiopian to watch for Shabbos. It's just, they didn't know anything. They literally just come from Ethiopia. I literally remember walking to the washing station, and I had a cold because it was the middle of the winter, and I coughed before I washed. So the Ethiopian boy who I was watching coughed and washed because he thought that's what religion is. You cough and you watch. So you cough and you wash. I had to like, be careful because everything I did, he, he repeated. So I had to like, make sure I wasn't doing anything out of line. If I scratched my head, he scratched it. He had no clue. But that type of aliyah, although it's important, and obviously we pursue it and we assist it, that stresses an economy. Because you're taking people from an economically underprivileged country without, in most cases, trained skills, and you're introducing them to your country. And, and that's our job. We're not running a country to be economically sound. We're running a country to be a safe haven for Jews. But 1.5 Russians, most of whom are educated, most of whom are cultured, most of whom are accustomed to a fairly reasonable economic standard. So again, in the first couple of years, the country was in convulsion because anytime you take, uh, a, 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 let's say, a quarter or a fifth of the population, it's going to dramatically stress the system. 
But ultimately, you want to draw a line between the Banana Republic of 1984 that I lived in and the startup entrepreneurial nation that's wealthy that you're living in? You want to draw that line right through Russian Aliyah. Russian Aliyah changed the economy of our people. It also changed the demographic, because most of them are right-wingers. And we're also interested politically, how did the Likud become so popular? Because Likud and all of its parallel parties speak to the Russian imagination more than left-wing parties, because they were always they have a certain view of governments, very suspicious and conservative views. That's also where the electorate changed. But that's already a political position. Do you think it's a good change or a poor change? Or bad or unfortunate change? But the economic change of Russian Aliyah? Unmistakable, undeniable. One of the major, major events of the state of Israel. And of course, not to mention the religious implications of getting Russian Jews out from under the suffocating hand, the iron fist of the Soviet Union. So when the Jews returned to Yerushalayim, it wasn't just what was happening in the old city, and what was happening in Tel Aviv, what was happening in Grisha Tzion, what was happening... It was also was happening in Moscow, and in Leningrad, and in Stalingrad, and in Takshent, and... Timbuktu, wherever the Russians were, because the Russian spheres of influence cover half of the world. That's number two. How it affected the Israeli Jewish population, how it affected the Russian Jewish population. But now the most important population, and the population that's represented in this room. How did it affect you? When you dive in next Thursday or next Friday, when you say hello and you talk, you thank Hashem for the Six Day War. I grew up in Teaneck, I grew up in Queens, I grew up in uh, River. I don't know, you, all these stories about Russian refuseniks and about paratroopers—they're all nice, and I like to read the books. But did it really change my life? Well, here's the answer about how it changed your life. But first, a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a background, okay? There's a little bit of a disappointing trend or tendency amongst girls and boys that come to Israel. So thank God they improve their religion and they try to work hard at their religion, higher levels of observance, higher levels of commitment. And then they tend to look back on their parents and their grandparents. And, yeah, you, maybe not so much with your parents because most of your parents, thank God, are themselves products of Israel and improved religion. Certainly in my generation, people are looking back at their parents, maybe your grandparents. Yeah, they weren't so religious... Yeah, they went to mixed dancing parties, they went to mixed beaches, they went to mixed swimming. I mean, we're the frummies. You know, they a little sad, we're kind to them, we're nice to them, but it's all modern orthodox business, so it doesn't make sense. It's a lot of garbage, it's a lot of silliness, it's a folly, it doesn't make sense. Just look around you. Now, sometimes it happens unsolicited. I fear, I've heard, that in some programs in yeshivos, it's actively instigated. Right? The best way to educate people is to hold a mirror to themselves and look at yourself in the mirror, like how terrible you are, like how terrible your background is. And, and maybe you don't have that here, and maybe you're not as vulnerable to it, because a lot of your friends go into different types of programs. I don't mean Shalavim, I mean different other types of programs. I, I, I don't mean programs with serious-minded girls. I mean programs, um, I'm sure I, I operate more in the, in the boys' sector, so I know the boys' programs for young men and women who just didn't succeed and didn't gain traction religiously in high school. So they're looking for a change. They're looking to be filled with content. You guys came to Israel successful. You made peace with religion. You looked at yourself, you styled yourself as religious. You wanted to grow religiously, each in their own way, each in their own approach, but you weren't looking to be brainwashed. You weren't looking to be rescued. You weren't looking for saviors. You were looking for education and growth. 
But think, I, I don't know your, I don't know your girlfriends. I imagine you could probably identify certain girls because, like, there are certain boys who in high school were washouts and they weren't able to grow religiously, and they're coming. Show me something different, and that's why, ironically, you'll find a lot of these young men and women swinging to a brand of orthodoxy that's a lot more binary and a lot more black and white and a lot more, which is all fine. It's built into the system. People who had bad experiences with something want to keep away from that. So you want to keep as far away as you can from a more nuanced approach to the world around you, and people just need different things. I've heard, though, that some teachers are actively manipulating people. Your parents are not from, and your grandparents are not from, and it's absolutely your responsibility to break with them and to snub them and to be snug towards them and to look back on this creepy, crawly, disgusting thing called modern orthodoxy. So if I were invited to Lakewood, which I don't anticipate being invited to soon, I would give, as one of my lectures, after I gave a few good shiurim just to gain people's trust, one of my lectures would be how modern orthodoxy saved American Orthodoxy. That would be a very well-attended lecture. <laughs> a lot of people would bring uh, rotten tomatoes and rotten cucumbers to toss at me. But I would try to sensitize them to the fact that, you know what, the world wasn't always the world that you see. And I'm here to tell you that I lived in that world. And I also heard stories about that world. So let me start from the beginning. I told you the story about my grandfather who made Emigrate, emigrated from Russia, moved to Baltimore. Baltimore was the Torah town of the day. Everyone who was Torah and Torah-oriented moved to Baltimore. And he prayed, he davened in the firmest shul in Baltimore. And he decided that in that shul he was going to start a club. And they handed out pins, and there were these little big buttons on there, lapels. And he called the club the Shomer Shabbos Club. And he told me that in the early 20s there were three people in the Shomer Shabbos Club. It means that three people in the firmest town in America, in the firmest shul in the firmest town, kept Shabbos. Which means that 90% of people just didn't keep Shabbos. Which means that if your grandfather kept Shabbos, whether he went mixed dancing or mixed swimming or mixed jelly bean or whatever he was mixing up, <laughs> he showed a lot more heroism in keeping Shabbos than you'll ever show by going to Lakewood or Mir or... And for your, again, I talk about in terms of my grandfather and father, for you have to probably update it, your grandfather and grand. For your grandparents to wear a kippah in public, no one wore a kippah in public. People saw orthodoxy as about to die. It was this old, ancient religion of the older people who came from Europe and talked in this very, very strange, heavy accent that ate kefir de fish and ate chai, it was disgusting and... Yeah, give it a few years, maybe a generation or two. It's going to die. We all know they read the Jewish press and they eat their disgusting foods and we have to give them because they're, they're our grandparents. And this orthodoxy thing, it's not really heading anywhere. And, and you know what? All indications pointed that that was the likely outcome because there was such a culture clash between modern America, the melting pot, the hyper freedom, sexual freedom, freedom of thought, freedom of expression of the 60s and the 70s, and technology and this new, the confidence, index level. You know, confident, you grew up in a very jaded America. People are jaded, people are jaundiced, people are just uh, everyone's lying, and the politicians are all, are all scandalous, and they're all forged and fraudulent, and you're very suspicious. They grew up in what's called Pax Americana. America was the great hero of the 20th century. They had defeated Hitler. Without American intervention, Hitler would have controlled Europe. 
It wasn't just the America of the 1940s. It was the culture of McDonald's and the culture of Coca-Cola and the culture of James Dean and the culture of the Beatles and the culture of... Everyone wanted in. And this was exerting tremendous pressure. Tremendous pressure on religion in America. You can't imagine how hard it was to be religious. I remember what I did during the summer. I won't tell you what I did during the summer. I didn't go to cola. I didn't learn during the summer. There weren't learning programs during the summer. No one was learning. We were going out and Let's just say I got a good education my summer. <laughs> I, I saw something in the summer that took years of therapy to get past. Okay? I wasn't sitting in Marsha Kolel or Mosheva BMP or whatever. I was watching people put things up their noses and who knows what else they were doing. You should have just stuck to baseball cards. Right. No, it's in my baseball cards. Trust me, I woke up middle of the night. I was traumatized. Huh? Well, my good old parents who were foreigners because we didn't live in New York, so... We didn't have any tradition. I was the older kid. So my parents in 1975 said, why don't we send our first son to a camp somewhere? Okay, good idea. <laughs> Seneca Lake, here I come. <laughs> here I come. Uh, yeah, you'll, you'll find out from your friends later. Okay? It was not exactly a frummy, frummy experience for me. Let's just put it that way. I learned about things I could never imagine happening. Put it this way. The, uh, the end of the year came and they handed out awards. Okay? Talk about the worst day of my life. In front of the entire camp, Moshe Tarragon, call up. Come to the stage. You are the best davener in camp. No! No! I want to be the best davener. Like an open invitation for insults and curses and beating me up. Literally, physically abused. Please don't give me the best davener. But there I have, best davener in camp. Little old pudgy me. Ten-year-old me, I'm the best doctor. No, no, please don't call me the best doctor. Okay, I guess I can look back on that in pride, but then it wasn't exactly a good time for me. Okay, so, you know, we had a word for the from people today. We had a word. We call them the grease balls. Probably ask your grandparents, why are they grease balls? For whatever reason, at least we saw them in our teenage eyes as people who didn't really care about their hygiene so much when we were slick and cool and trying to dress with the latest fashion and latest trends. So their duds weren't exactly that great, and they weren't showering so much. We had our hairdoers, and they just let their hair go to pot, and it got all greasy, so we called them the grease balls. Ask anyone from the 70s and 60s. That was like the from people. It went and the from people, the grease balls. That was one of the great tragedies of Rabbi Soloveitchik's life during his prime. He never really, which is always true of revolutionaries. Revolutionaries very rarely get to enjoy the benefits or the consequences of their revolution because it takes uh, a period for it to settle in. So today you walk into the Wai Yubay's Madrash at night, there's 700 boys sitting and learning top of their lungs. You walk into the base Madrash at night in 1976 in Wai there are three people in the base Madrash. Five people, six people. I mean, it's a joke. A joke. So it wasn't exactly the from world where it's cool to go to camp and everyone's learning Daf Yomi and everyone's learning Mishnayos and everyone's getting prizes and everyone's it was a hard time to be religious. Lakewood wasn't Lakewood, Mir wasn't Mir, kosher food wasn't kosher food, and Torah wasn't on anyone's radar. And modern orthodoxy saved Judaism. Because it was the only brand of Judaism that told people, you know what, it will work. You have to be afraid of the culture. There are smart people who have made peace with the culture, who can explain the culture, who can synthesize the culture. You can be both. Now, this is not a conversation on whether you want to be a modern orthodox. I don't even know what that means, but I know you guys like to talk about it. But whoever the biggest modern orthodox groupie in this room is, and then the other one who is the biggest anti-modern orthodox fanatic, you both 
owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to Rabbi Soloveitchik in modern orthodoxy for saving Judaism. Because I don't think Judaism would have been saved. Now, what happened afterwards? If you feel the modern orthodoxy was just a necessary evil, a necessary pill to swallow the 60s and 70s and we move forward, that's a legitimate position. You can have that position. And you can say, you know what? Bon voyage, modern orthodoxy, it got me to the 80s, and now it's the 80s, and we were able to catapult ourselves and advance forward. That's a perfectly legitimate position. But all this snickering and ridicule and mocking your grandparents who went, mix this and mix that, a little little historical wisdom, not myopia. I remember someone told me the following story, that they went away to the country. Americans, all Orthodox Jews, all go to the Catskill Mountains. So they remember going away to the country in the middle of 1960s from Queens. Queens was mainstream from Jewish communities. And they came back, and they were pushing their carriage in the street on Shabbos, and everyone starts making eyes at them. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? You know, this is before Arabs. So what do you mean? I'm pushing my children home. Oh, you were in the country for the summer. You didn't realize the rabbi taught us about that pushing a carriage in public is usser and shamas. He decided that was a good time to introduce it. What does that mean? Before the summer, everyone pushed carriages. No one really kept Shabbos, even those who kept Shabbos. You didn't carry things on Shabbos. You didn't light a match on Shabbos. You didn't go on an airplane on Shabbos. But no one drilled down to the details because it was too hard for people, and the rabbis had to make hard decisions. Hard decisions were so we had mixed dancing in the basement of the shul, Matzah Shabbos, which would let the men go hang out in pubs and hang out with shifts. So I'd rather hang out with Jewish girls, even if it means uh, Nida. You think people kept real Nida? I don't know what they kept. No one's climbed to anyone's bedroom, but real Nida with Bidikos and Hefsektara and, and the full Monty, which, by the way, I mean, if you don't get to a certain threshold, it's all nice and good spiritually and symbolically, but you're not tar. If you don't do even a rudimentary bedika, if you don't do a rudimentary, there's no cheskestar. You can go to the mikvah from here to wazir, you're not tar. Everyone's doing the best they could. Everyone's making hard decisions. And Baruch Hashem, the world shifted. When did the world shift? Well, you got it. 1967. That's when things turned. And it was partially a religious turn, the metaphysical turn that I spoke about. It was also a restoration of Jewish pride. When Jews heard about the army and the paratroopers, all of a sudden, wearing a kippah in public became acceptable. All of a sudden, again, this is not something that I think I'm proud of, because I don't think this is the way to roll, but the JDL, Jewish Defense League, those of you who know the history of the Jewish Defense League, America Hanna, this is when they were born and they started to, again, I think they were guilty of many violent acts, but I'm just tracing, that's when Jewish pride was born. One expression of it was, let's defend ourselves. But all of a sudden, Jews lived on eggshells after the Holocaust. Around the world, Jews lived on eggshells. Let's not be too public. Let's not push our agendas. We have no place in politics. I'm shocked. When I go back to America, I'm shocked. And I try to explain this to Jews that don't live in America, and they're shocked. How public and prominent Orthodox observant Jewry is in America. They're mayors of cities. They're in councils. And you go, yes, and you go to... Yes, and you go to the baseball in Lakewood and in Borough Park and in the Five Towns. You go to sporting events, there's kosher food being sold, and there are minyanim. There are minyanim that are announced over the loudspeaker. In the seventh inning of a baseball game, everyone who wants to dive in mincha, you're shocked by it because Jews in London, when you go to a football match, you put your hat on and you sit there. Dare you, dare you let people know that you're Jewish. America 
before 1967 was like London today. You operate on the, and I still remember that. You operate on the fringe. You're not too public. You're a guest. You're a visitor. You keep to yourself. You're kind and polite. Remember going with my father. Every Shabbos visiting the fire station and saying hello to Officer Howie and Officer Darnold. And on Christmas, giving gifts to our neighbors, just to keep good relationships with our neighbors. And you give Christmas gifts? Yes. You do? Yeah. Okay, so he's still I'm going to give me Christmas gifts to Bobby and Ricky because I have to be But no one. Fila! I sometimes look at these basketball games, and I'm trying to look at the front row. These are front row seats, and they're seen in all the highlights. There's so many from Jews sitting there. In our wildest dreams, we didn't see ourselves as sitting in the front row. These are $3,000 ticket seats. And sometimes they were kippahs, sometimes they were hats. I can tell the Jewish anyway. It's just, no, we went in, we were quiet. We sat in a little corner and ate our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and our little contams and little mice. Now we're here and we're here to take control and we're going to be the mayor and Pesach and Great Adventures and Florida and JetBlue and here we come. We're coming to conquer. That's what it is. We control the weather. We control the economy. Okay, that's... Unfortunately, it's built into anti-Semitism. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but just we're very successful people because we're the children of Kodesh Baruch And when you are guests and you're a bit separatist because of your own customs and you're very successful, it's a cocktail for anti-Semitism. Again, I'm not blaming us. It's not like there's anyone to blame. It was like that in Spain. It's the same repeat of Spain. We're successful people. We keep to ourselves. We have our own customs. And it's frustrating. And the second that domestic stress or economic downturn sets in, so you look across at your Jewish neighbor, and they're living it up in Florida, and they're living it up in their uh, vacation homes. And it's, it's, when we're in Israel, it's our country, and we can be proud of our success. And we can share our success and share our wealth. And when you're living in someone else's, it's like coming into a person's house and saying, you know, I don't like this room. Move the bed out. Move this bed in. And I don't like your dinner. But, you know, you're, a, you're a guest. And... That all changed. So all this religious growth and all this Jewish pride and all this influence and all these voting patterns. So don't think that, oh, I grew up in Tinek, I grew up, it didn't affect me. It affected you. Because you could have grown up like I grew up and gone to Seneca and, and made fun of the grease balls and spent your summers, I don't know why, I'll tell you some other time, doing all sorts of things, but not learning Torah. Trust me, not learning Torah. The last thing on my mind is learning Torah. That changed in 1967. You're saying it was a catalyst, right? Like, Right. It's not like everyone went to Lakewood, you know, June 25th, 1967. It started, set in motion, a restoration of Jewish pride. People started wearing kippah. When Jewish people feel pride, they start investing in Torah. People start to, Jewish pride then translates into religious pride. And in a way that I don't think most of the boys in Lakewood would understand. So I want to teach them this, that it doesn't come out of a vacuum. That's all of a sudden people start learning Torah. It's because, just like after Hanukkah, remember Hanukkah I taught you how the restoration of Jewish pride and Jewish sovereignty led to the Tanayim and led to the Amorayim and Whenever there's a restoration of Jewish pride, there's a surge in Torah learning. Okay, number four, the fourth consequence. We talked about how it affected Israeli Jews, how it affected Russian Jews, and how it affected Western Jews. Well, it also affected the world community. In 1948, the world didn't shudder. In fact, the world is pretty happy in 1948 because it solved their guilty conscience. 48 solved two problems of the world. Number one, their guilt. Number two, this very thorny refugee problem. You've all seen the black and white film clips of Jews being denied entry in Cuba and being denied entry in Mexico and being poured. Those are really thorny issue. A lot of these Jews 
They don't have a place to go. They couldn't go back to Poland because they faced pogroms in Poland. They didn't want to go back to Germany. What do you, have, what do you put all these Jews? So you put them in Israel. It solves your problem. So, ka-ching, ka-ching, bada-bing, bada-boom, Israel will slice it up like a salami. You take some, you take some. It wasn't a historical event. When Jews return to Yushalayim, you better believe people consciously or subconsciously know this is a historical moment. When Jews walk into Yushalayim, shamu amim yurgazun, people hear about it and they start to shake. Again, people are affected by forces they can't describe, right? We know that. It's called psychology. But there's another sphere, it's not just psychology and subconscious, it's called metaphysics. And Hashem puts certain factors in this world that affect people in ways they can't determine. You dream last night? Were you able to forecast that dream? No. So there are forces in your subconscious that affect your identity. And there are larger forces that also affect your identity. And whether the, you interview the, ar- the average um, um, jihad, uh, Islamic jihad terrorists, and that was all about, as we're seeing, it's all about Yerushalayim, it's all about Harabayas and events in Aza and events in Lebanon, and events in Iran, and events in London, and events in... In Shir Hashirim, there are a lot of different personalities that take the stage. Obviously, the primary actors are the man and the woman. I could inspire who is the male and where the woman. But a lot of people come on stage, and there are these people that come up and on, up and down the stage called Benos Yushalayim. Shabbat Yoschem Benos Yushalayim. Four times. Who are the Benos Yushalayim? So... Classically, Chazal saw the Benos Yishalayim as the nations of the world. They're part of the historical narrative of Shir Hashim. Why are they called Benos Yishalayim? Why are they the daughters of Yishalayim? So the Gemara says, Yishalmi, the word Bas doesn't just mean a daughter. The word Bas can sometimes mean, metaphorically, a suburb. So, for example, in Parshas Chukas, when the Jews conquered Cheshbon, which was one of the areas owned by Moab, so they conquered Cheshbon Uvin Noseha. They conquered Cheshbon and all the suburbs. Why is a suburb called a bus? In the same way, right? you belong to your family, but you'll get married at some point and you'll leave the family, but you'll still be connected to the family. So you're not living in New York City, you're living in Teaneck, but you're still connected to New York City. So you're not living with your parents anymore, but you're a suburb of your parents' core nucleus home. Rabbi Yochanan said, every single city will be a suburb of Yushalayim. Yushalayim is the epicenter of human history. It's where history began and where history will end. And when HaKadosh Baruch Hu steps out from behind the Kotel and the entire world sees him, everyone will gather in Yushalayim. And every other place in the world will be a suburb. London, suburb. Beijing, suburb. Uh, Shanghai, suburb. Moscow, suburb. New York City, suburb. L.A., all be a suburb. Everyone will know. And they know that this is the center of human history. This is where it began. This is where it will end. And they know subconsciously that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is directing history towards terminus. And they know that we are the people of history. And we are the engine of redemption. And they know that when we walk into Yushalayim, all of a sudden history starting to move forward. Now some people celebrate that. Go to Alabama, you'll find a lot of people who are very happy that we're in Israel. I think I'm speaking to them next Wednesday night. No, the Texas, I'm sorry, Texas. <laughs> And a lot of people are angry that we're here. But no one can be neutral about Jews in Yerushalayim. Jews in Haifa, you can be neutral about. Jews in Yerushalayim is a whole different story. 
And that's the fourth impact of Yom Yushalayim from Yushalayim's standpoint. Remember, divide the day into two. One part of the day is military victory. Even had we never stepped foot in one centimeter of Yushalayim, you'd make a Yantif. Some people, of Unterman, who was the Rav HaRashi in 1967, said that even if you don't say Hallel on Yom HaTzmarot, you should say Hallel on Yom And there are people like that. Why? Because of military victory. Mefele, Arab Shiba Lagula, Mechaim Lamaves, literally. Take out all the ideology, all the prophecy, all the Rabbi Tarragon rants, take them all out. We feared a Holocaust. We feared 80,000 people dead. We feel the collapse of our state. That comes Baruch who saved us. Reason for sin. Even if you don't bring all your ideology, hey, you are. Then there's the second part to the day, not the day of the military victory, but this day of returning to Yerushalayim, to the biblical corridor, to Tanakh, and how it impacted Israeli society, how it impacted the Jews in Russia, how it impacted the Jews in good old America, London, and France, and how it impacted every single person on this earth. You think about that when you say Kiddush next week, when you hear Kiddush. Hashem created the world in six days, and He created the modern world in six days. And those six days change history. That's why Yishalayim should never, remember I told you the words you never use? You never use Nazi words about things that aren't Holocaust related. Never, ever use the term Yishalayim to describe anything other than Yishalayim. <laughs> Don't make the mistake that German Jews did in the 6th century BC. There's a Masara that Jews were dispersed all over the world after the Churban Mesa English. Most of them went to Babel, but some went to Yemen, some went to Italy, some went to Germany, where else did I read about? Some went to Spain, Greece. Egypt, pockets of Jews. Not everyone went to Babel. The mad escape, everyone was running all over the place. Most of them were taken into captivity. Babel, everyone was all over the place. So could you imagine Jews made their way to Germany? Black Forest. So I was thinking, like, what the weeks and months that it took them to run away just boggles the imagination. Seventy years later, Ezra starts to return to Israel, and he writes letters to all the Jewish communities across the globe. Also letters, took three months to get there. He wrote his letters. And the Jews of Germany, a lot of Jews didn't come back. Jews stayed in Egypt, Alexandria. Jews stayed in Rome. Jews obviously stayed in Persia, Babylonia. Yemen. But the Jews of Germany wrote back to Ezra the following letter. They said, you stay in Yushalayim. You go to Yushalayim. We'll stay in mini Yushalayim, which Germany has become for us. There is a Masora that because they used the term Yushalayim to describe Germany, then German Jews always suffered disproportionately throughout history. That's not my Masora. Sounds like the So there are words you have to train yourself not to use. One of the recurring lessons of this year is watch your words. Not just in one way to say a bad thing, just like think about what words mean and use your terms judiciously and discreetly. Use them well. Don't take them as assumptions, don't fall into mind traps. Think about the words you use, because if you lazily use words, you become those words and you fall into these conventions rather than building your identity.
So you may not never may not ever live in Yerushalayim or in Israel, but there is only one Yerushalayim. And to use that term, that's already. It's one thing not to live in Israel, not to live in Yerushalayim. It's another thing once you start calling Muncie Yerushalayim, once you start, then you're violating history. That's a violation of history. And violations of history are religious malfunctions. 